You're listening to Down to a Science, a LANL podcast series. Within the past 14 years, more and more people have participated in DNA tests and databases such as Ancestry and 23andMe. Genes are extremely complex systems. They determine whether you have brown eyes or green eyes, light hair or dark hair, or whether cilantro tastes like soap. Yes, some individuals have a variation of a gene that exacerbates the soapy-flavored aldehydes in cilantro. They even determine where each individual stores body fat. Scientists in the genetics field are making new discoveries on a daily basis, but there are still so many unknowns. What causes certain genes to express themselves? That's one question many scientists, or more specifically, epidemiologists have. What is it that causes certain genetic traits to turn off, deactivating the gene, which therefore isn't expressed in the person? Gene deactivation is a major contributor as to whether people are born with certain ailments, such as Down syndrome or heart disease. I'm your host, Joey Montoya, from Los Alamos National Laboratory, and today we're talking to Carissa Sanbonmatsu, a structural biologist at Los Alamos, about epigenetics and what the future looks like for understanding our genetic expressions. She seeks answers to questions such as, what is the driving factor between gene expression and why are some people more at risk to disease than others? Using supercomputers, Carissa and her team have created accurate 3D models of DNA molecules to see how their structure affects whether the gene is on or off. She is hopeful a better understanding of genes at the molecular level will lead to better treatments. Carissa, before we get into epigenetics and your work, how did you get into this field? My name is Carissa Sambanmatsu. I'm a structural biologist here at Los Alamos National Laboratory, and I've been here over 20 years. And about me, I grew up in uh, central New York State, and I grew up as a big Star Wars fan, so I was always interested in science and technology. Started writing code when I was about 10 years old and um, have been coding ever since. And then I did uh, come out as a transgender woman about uh, 10 years ago. And that actually got me very interested in epigenetics, which is how the shape of your chromosomes influence gene expression and how that can influence uh, brain development in the embryo. And so uh, that's my story. What Star Wars movie and character did you gravitate toward the most growing up? I have to say, this is controversial, but for me, I'd have to say Empire Strikes Back and Yoda. I'm kind of a classic gal, and uh, Yoda has been my guiding light in, in science uh, almost my whole life. Even in Star Wars, where technology seems so advanced, disease shouldn't exist. Disease wiped out colonies. The brain rot plague was an airborne virus, which caused nausea, sweats, and cognitive dysfunction. Thankfully, brain rot plague doesn't exist in the real world. But our world was recently disrupted by something else. COVID-19 changed many aspects of the world that has now grown to manage it. The official pandemic ended and life has mostly gone back to normal. However, the disruption it caused to every person on the planet is still tangible. Many died, some were harshly affected with hospitalization, while others merely had a headache. The question as to why so many people experienced minimal to severe symptoms is still shrouded in mystery but epigenetics could lead to some answers. We're trying to understand how 
infections like uh, COVID-19 can impact the genome and uh, chromosome shape and influence gene expression. And we're doing early studies now uh, looking at infected cells to see how a viral infection can impact the shape of the chromosome, impact its epigenetics, and impact how genes get turned on and off. And we think it's tied into the immune response. And so we're doing uh, some work with uh, computer simulations where we're uh, using the computers to model uh, data about chromosomes for healthy and infected cells. And then we're putting together uh, three-dimensional models and we're seeing some changes in the shapes of these chromosomes uh, that happen during infection. This is very, very early work, so it's all very preliminary, but we do have some uh, promising results right now. We're working just at the level of um, cell cultures, so in, in basically in a petri dish, but we're seeing how those cells respond uh, to the infection, so looking at before and after to see what kind of changes happen. And uh, right now, it's there's a lot of reports about long COVID and side effects of COVID that people don't really understand, and we don't really understand why some people are susceptible and some people are not. And we think it could be due to some of these effects at the chromosome level, but we're not sure. And that's one of the things we're trying to figure out. Sean Starkenberg, Christina Stedman are uh, leading the team to get the data on uh, infection and how the infections change the chromosomes. In 2019, Carissa and her team at Los Alamos used supercomputers to create the first billion atom simulation of an entire gene of DNA. It's the largest biomolecular simulation to date. The process used a supercomputer to generate a moving simulation with enormous amounts of data. The way we construct these 3D models is we start in the wet lab doing uh, biochemistry experiments. And there what we do is we uh, look at the nucleus of the cell where all the chromosomes are. And uh, we add in chemicals uh, into the nucleus to kind of freeze the DNA and the chromosomes. And it, it freezes it in one state. And you can think of it kind of like a bowl of spaghetti, where each chromosome is sort of looks like a bowl of spaghetti. You may have seen pictures of chromosomes that look like an X, but that's only at one point in the cell cycle when they're dividing. In general, they look more like a bowl of spaghetti. And in the bowl of spaghetti, they, that strand of spaghetti crosses itself many times over. And, uh, in thousands of places. And so when we add a certain chemical uh, to the nucleus, uh, that can that basically glues the sp spaghetti together at all its crossing points. And then what we can do is we can cut apart the spaghetti, which is, I'm making an analogy to the chromosomes. So we cut apart the chromosomes. And, uh, but since we've added that glue in, all the crossing points are preserved and then we can use high throughput sequencing to sequence all of those crossing points and figure out exactly where the chromosome crosses itself thousands and thousands of times. And from those crossing points, we can then uh, get the geometry data to make 3D uh, reconstructions or 3D structures, 3D models of what the chromosome looks like in 3D. That, uh, so what we can do next is once we have our three-dimensional model, we can then simulate how it moves around and how something like an infection can impact the shape of that chromosome. 
and this can take uh, an entire supercomputer to simulate depending on the resolution that you look at it so we have some great supercomputers at Los Alamos one is called Chicoma that was brought here to focus on COVID-19 and now it's been expanded to uh, be more general purpose to look at any basic science questions so the the algorithm to develop these three-dimensional models was created by Anna Lopala who was at Los Alamos and now she's at Harvard and we have a great collaboration uh, with Harvard University and Mass Gen Hospital with Anna Lapala and Jeannie Lee, who's doing a lot of uh, wet lab work in this. What was the purpose of these simulations? Well, genes are highly complex. A gene is a segment of a DNA strand which includes the double helical formations and histone proteins. One gene may decide what colors one hair is, while another may determine how susceptible someone is to certain diseases such as heart disease. Alzheimer's disease, or certain cancers. What causes a gene to turn on or off? Parissa and her team believe creating visual simulations of genes with atomistic detail will lead to a greater understanding of these events. It will also tell us a lot about how the structure works. Carissa, since you've simulated a gene, which is only a fragment of a chromosome, where does the ability to simulate an entire chromosome stand? Uh, we, we did have... Uh... A study that came out a few years ago where we were doing using the supercomputers at Los Alamos to study an entire gene for the first time. And now we're trying to expand on that and to go for full chromosomes. And to do that, we can't really look at the full chromosomes in atomistic detail like we did on the gene, but we're using uh, kind of simpler models where we can still look at the full chromosome, but not in as much detail and making close contact with experimental data. And so we're trying to use a combination of experimental methods and the supercomputers to really understand uh, how these chromosomes work. Like right now, uh, we don't even really know exactly what a chromosome looks like, surprisingly enough, because we can't see it in atomistic detail. And we don't know, really know how it moves around in, in detail either. And so it's, it's still controversial if a chromosome has one static structure or is it always changing and moving around all the time and we're, we're trying to understand how that works one of the nice things about these kinds of study is they really uh, push our supercomputers to their breaking point i would say because they're so intensive even just doing one gene um, we, we really push that trinity machine to its to its limits the reason is that the electrostatic forces are quite important for molecules like dna and that means there's a lot of long-range interactions and in terms of the computing there's a lot of long-range communication that happens like sort of all-to-all -all communications between all the processors and cores um, so these are really tough calculations to pull off um, so what what we're doing now is kind of a iterative strategy between the experiments and the computers where we do some computation we check it with the experiment we try to refine our computations and, and go back and forth uh, because we don't have the compute power to simulate like a full chromosome atom for atom. But we, what we can do is kind of have, instead of all the atoms, have pseudoparticles that represent each part of, pseudoparticle could represent maybe uh, a million atoms or, or something like that. And then stringing those together, we can emulate a full chromosome, but it's in a very coarse detail. Comparing a normal chromosome to a chromosome from an individual who has Alzheimer's disease may lead to a new understanding of the disease. But is it possible external factors can contribute to turning genes on and off that may leave someone susceptible to disease? 
Yeah, absolutely. So the, the, the relation between the genes and the chromosomes is that the hypothesis is that when a, a, a chunk of the chromosome kind of compacts or collapses, this is thought to turn off a gene. And, or when a chunk kind of is able to open up and expand a bit, it allows the machinery of the cell to get in there and start turning on the genes and expressing the proteins and everything. So when it compacts, it, it's kind of occluded from the cellular machinery that needs to get at it. But when it's expansive, then they can get in there and express the genes. And this is kind of how your body works, how all the genes get turned on and off and so forth. But the thing is, we don't really understand in detail how that works, even though that's the hypothesis for how your whole body works. We don't understand these details uh, to the atomic level. And that, and that kind of understanding is what we need uh, for really predictive design for, for doing predictive studies for designing drugs and so forth. So one of the canonical examples in this field is about your stress response. And there were studies done uh, a, a while ago now uh, where uh, in, in rodents where it was on actually nurturing of little baby rats. And it turned out that uh, the, the rats that were nurtured a lot um, had a proper stress response, but the ones that were not nurtured, uh, it altered their stress response negatively for their whole lifetime. And they also had other uh, health problems with that. And then when they went and sequenced the DNA, they could see these markers on the DNA on the stress response genes. Uh, and these are the same markers that are related to these compaction events of the chromosome. And so they had a lot of hard evidence showing that uh, if the uh, baby rats were not nurtured properly, then they would get these um, modifications to their uh, DNA that would uh, change their com compaction properties and then alter the genes uh, being turned on or off in, in the correct way. And there's been all kinds of other studies, not just on stress, but um, the effect of to toxins, different plastics and uh, environmental factors, nicotine, uh, all kinds of things can, can affect your, your chromosomes. Science on sexuality has and is still making headlines on a regular basis. Could these expansion and collapsing events have an effect on sexual orientation and transgenderism as well? It, it's so early now because the one reason is there's very little uh, research funding to, to do work on this. People try, try to do it on the side a little bit. So there there's a few papers here and there and usually not with very many samples. So there's a lot of not a lot, actually. There's there's two, three groups in the world doing brain imaging now and functional MRI studies, and they've looked at transgender men, transgender women, gay men, gay women. Um, but the the statistics are are quite low in terms of the number of patients they looked at and so forth. So we really need, I would say, a lot uh, more funding and more more data to. Uh, make any definitive conclusions, but it's um, something that we don't really know about that I think needs more research. People don't really know a lot about the biological origins of gender right now, but one working hypothesis is that, uh, well, it's, it's known that in terms of differentiation uh, to male or female, uh, that kind of the, uh, the, the genitals of the embryo differentiate early on in pregnancy, but the brain differentiates later on. And it's possible that uh, something with the hormone signaling um, gets switched around in people like me, transgender women, 
to to cause the body to go one way but the brain to go another way um but the, it's still very early days there's uh very little research on this done right now but um but the more we understand about uh gene expression the the, the better off we are i think the field of epigenetics has a long road ahead of it Imaging genes and chromosomes will give insight into how expansion and collapsing events happen within the gene. But imaging requires so much computer power, we're barely touching the surface. Down to a Science is produced by Los Alamos National Laboratory. Your host, Joey Montoya. Special thanks to our guest, Carissa Sanwamatsu. Find out more about the laboratory and its mission at www.lanl.gov.